Amen. Good morning, church. It's a great joy to be with you again. I love always preaching God's word anywhere, any place, but it's a special privilege to preach to ministry partners, uh, to those who have long prayed for us and given and encouraged us in our gospel work in India and Australia. The last time I was here was after the pandemic had just struck, and so I preached to an empty room to a camera, almost empty. Uh, Maybe 10 people, so I was trying to make eye contact with one here and one there, and uh, it's so much more fun to have all of you here and to be able to see your faces and to interact with you as we look to God's Word together today. Um, I would encourage you, I know as Presbyterians, we sometimes say amen by taking notes. Uh, Feel free to say a real amen if you like something during the sermon. Um, I've preached in many different contexts around the world, and the more affirmation, the more encouragement, the better, so feel free to cut loose a little bit uh, if you so desire. I want to invite you to open your Bible to God's Word in Haggai chapter 2. Uh, we'll be looking at verse 14 to, or 10 to 19 in just a moment. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a, a blue pew Bible in front of you, and it's on page 791, on page 791. Before I read God's Word, I would like to pray and ask His blessing on this time in His words. So let's turn to our Lord together. Father in heaven, it's the Lord's day. It is the feast day for the Christian Uh, It's the best moment of the week that we've been looking forward to, where we gather as your blood-bought church on this Lord's Day to find our rest in you as we worship you, as we delight in the beauty and the glory of your character. And Lord, as you feed us with your word, we are so thankful for the word of God, wherein you reveal your glory to us, wherein you reveal your matchless and mighty Son, who is our Savior and Redeemer, and in whom we have hope. And so we look for the ministry of your Holy Spirit this morning as we open the Scriptures. We would plead with you that he would open them to us, that our hearts might be turned towards you in fresh repentance and faith and new obedience and delight, that we would meet you here in your word, that we would be transformed. Father, there are those among us for sure who are yet to put their faith in Christ, whether young or old, and we pray that today you would grant the gift of faith through the preaching of your word that men and women, boys and girls, maybe for the first time, might begin to worship you acceptably. Father, we come with great expectation to your word. Help me as the preacher of your word this morning. Grant that I, the weak vessel, would be used by you to proclaim the matchless mystery and riches of Christ in a great way that would bring grace to your people. So we look to you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand before we read Haggai 2, 10 to 19, just in honor of God's Word. Sometimes as we teach our children to learn how to repent towards one another, we have five children, there's lots of fighting, uh, we'll often encourage them to say, hey, please forgive me and name their sin. And sometimes my kids are distressed when the sibling won't give the immediate affirmation of forgiveness and they're like, I asked them, why didn't they tell me? Maybe we feel that way in our relationship with God sometimes. Why are we sure that He's going to receive us? And this text initially is an assurance of pardon for God's people on the basis of repentance that they've already been granted. Seth preached on Haggai 1 a a couple weeks ago and called God's people to repent and preached on that, and here's the assurance of pardon. So hear the word of God, this assurance of pardon for God's people then, and the assurance of pardon for God's people now as they repent and trust Him as Redeemer. The word of God says in Haggai 2.10, on the 24th day of the ninth month and the second year of Darius, The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment 
and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Please be seated. One of the more popular television shows since 2002 has been the series The Bachelor. You don't have to admit that you watch it, but you're probably familiar with some of the content of a bunch of beautiful young women trying to gain the affection of one uh, eligible young bachelor. Since 2002, they've had one host up until recently, and that host was Chris Harrison, uh, a long-running host showing his popularity, showing how much people appreciated him, both the people who did the show and those who watched. But in February, something happened. In February, Chris Harrison was being interviewed about the show, and he was asked about a contestant who had been in the news for some, a previous contestant, a woman who had been in the news for a previous racial post and things she had pushed, and uh, there was a specifically a picture of her at a, a slavery-era plantation party back when she was 18 and was asking Chris about this. And Chris was saying, you know, we should be very careful. We don't want to judge her. Um, I think we should let her speak for herself. I really don't want to speak to that. And, and then he went on to say, I don't think we should let the woke police tell us what we have to say. Chris had no idea that the words he said would get him in trouble. A firestorm erupted on social media and around that, why didn't this popular host come out and condemn the racism of this woman? What kind of person is this? What kind of show is this? And so, before too long, Chris Harrison was on a morning TV show to repent. And he said this and as part of his statement. He said, what I now realize I've done is cause harm by wrongly speaking in a manner that perpetuates racism. And for that, I am so deeply sorry. And he went on and on. In his mind, he was repenting. People asked him about his plans for the show. Do you continue to be the host of the show? He said, oh, of course. Yes, I'm looking forward to the next season. But not long after this repentance, he was gone. No more Chris Harrison. He, he came out and said he wouldn't be hosting the show, but most people understood that he had been asked to step down. One Christian commentator said that Chris had made the cardinal sin in our so-called cancel culture. He had repented. 
Cancel culture, what many say, is a, a culture where there is no grace for mistakes, where you can dredge up something from someone's past, and regardless of whether they even believe it or act on it now, you can condemn them for it. And no matter the level of contrition, if you own up to it, you're gone. That's a dangerous thing, my friends. It's a dangerous thing because as Christians, we are so imbibed by our culture so often, knowingly and both unknowingly, that we easily take in cultural tendencies to our own heart. And we're living in a culture now that perhaps that more than ever does not facilitate repentance, which is deadly for Christianity, is it not? The question is, as Christians, will we be more influenced by our so-called cancel culture or will we be more influenced by the culture of Christ that is held forth in His Word? After all, repentance is vital to the Christian life. It's vital to our relationship with God. It's vital to our relationship as a community of believers. Martin Luther, you may remember in his first of the 95 Theses, said when our Lord and Master said repent, he willed that the whole life of the Christian be a life of repentance. So how can we cultivate hearts of repentance in a culture that is increasingly discouraging repentance? Well, there's many places we could turn to in God's Word to teach us about biblical repentance, but Haggai 2, 10 to 19 is certainly an excellent place, and it's where we are in our sermon series through Haggai at this point. There we will be encouraged that God delights in our repentance and encourages our repentance, and in His love and goodness does everything possible to facilitate us living lives of repentance both with Him and with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This morning from Haggai 2, 10 to 19, I want to encourage you to repent to reap the reward of our Redeemer. That's my sermon title, the theme of this sermon, to repent to reap the reward of our Redeemer. And we're going to look at three movements of this text to help us get to that point. You can find this outline in your bulletin here on the back. You'll see in verses 10 to 19, or 10 to 14, that first we'll have to reckon with how our rebellion renders our worship as rubbish. You'll have to forgive. I went to seed on the R's. I'm sorry. Uh, Sometimes we preachers have these things and it's fun. So we're going to reckon with how our rebellion renders our worship as rubbish in verses 10 to 14. Secondly, we'll see that we should repent in light of our Redeemer's right discipline in our lives in verses 15 to 19. And then thirdly, we'll see that we are to rejoice in the reward our Redeemer offers to repentance in verse 19. So let's dig into this text As I mentioned in the introduction to this, this text is really not so much a call to repent as it is an assurance of pardon of a people who have already repented. You may remember two weeks ago, Seth preached from Haggai chapter 1 about God confronting His people through the prophet Haggai because they were not in obedience to continue to rebuild the temple. And as the prophet preached, God in His mercy, He gave the grace of repentance. The Spirit moved. The people began to repent and began to rebuild. And then in chapter 2, 1 to 9, Mark last week preached on how as they were continuing in their new obedience, God was encouraging them and saying, don't be discouraged, I will be with you, continue on. And now we get to this day, a day that seems to be a ceremony, and God wants to assure His people that He has seen and is responding and will bless their repentance. So though this text for God's people then was an assurance of repentance already given, it it gives us a wonderful model and a wonderful encouragement of how we, as God's redeemed people now in Christ, are to live lives of repentance. Look at the setting in verse 10. Oh, sorry. 
On the 24th day of the ninth month, that may not mean a whole lot to you if you've been listening to Haggai before, it was on the 24th day of the sixth month that they had responded to God's call to repent and began to rebuild the temple. And so there's three months from the beginning of the reconstruction of the temple, and what this seems to be is a a ceremony, a formal time to say we've started something, we want to celebrate it. Commentators tell us this was probably common in the ancient Near East when you would start a building project some way in, you would have a time of ceremony, much like we do today. Now, you've probably been to a grand opening celebration for a business, and it's usually not on the first day of business. They may have already started and got going, but at some point, they advertise, and people come, and there's a a big grand opening ceremony. That seems to be what's going on here. There's an emphasis in the text of Scripture that it's on the 24th day of the ninth month. We see it in verse 10. We saw it in verse 18. We'll see it in verse 20. Notice verse 15, who describes it this way, God says, before you placed stone upon stone. That seems to be actually a a technical reference to a building ceremony. At times, they would place a stone, especially if there was an old building, and they would put it on top of the new stone to commemorate and to show what's going on and a new thing that's moving forward. And so, this is a particular ceremony, and God is going to make a point to His people on a day that they would remember forever the day when the temple was celebrated rebuilding and God would show them His grace so that it would be forever marked in their memories. And to do this, God has His prophet ask the priest a series of questions. If you look at Haggai 2.11, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. That was common. That was normal. That's a priest's job. He was supposed to answer questions about the ceremonial law. And because this was a day of commemoration, it's quite possible that the priests are actually up on a stage like this in some sorts, and they're involved in leading the ceremony of, of dedication. And God comes to His prophet and says, while they're there, ask them a question that all of God's people can hear. You've probably seen a, a Ligonier conference, a Together for the Gospel, um, Gospel Coalition, where you have you know, some, some famous pastors or teachers up front. You might have a Sinclair Ferguson or a Ligon Duncan Uh, Tim Keller, and you might have someone like Kevin DeYoung interviewing them for people to hear and asking questions. And perhaps that's the picture that can be in our mind where the priests have been leading in the ceremony and God through his prophet says, I want to make a point to my people, ask them this question. And so let's look at these two questions that he asked them and we'll, we'll soon see the point of them. Verse 12, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind of food, does it become holy? I know you've often asked yourself that same question. <laughs> the point being, this is a free will offering. Most of the offerings of the temple, they had to eat that day, but there was one offering, a free will offering, that they could take home and eat by the next day. And so you can imagine them lifting the robe and putting the extra meat to carry it home. And the question is, will that holy meat, will its holiness transfer through a garment that is not holy? And the answer is no. We'll see the point of that in just a moment. Look at verse 13, a second question. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. So a person is unclean. They've touched a body. They're unclean for seven days. They have to go through a purification ritual. Everything they touch becomes unclean. You think, what's the point? Maybe the people are wondering that as well. Well, the point comes in verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people 
and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there, talking about the altars that were at the temple, is unclean. We discover that God's people are that garment. Holiness, things they were offering would not be holy anymore because it was going through them, if you will, a garment that was unholy. They are like a person who's touched a dead body and become unclean, and everything they touch is unclean. And so when they come for worship at the temple, even though it's not rebuilt, they're, they're coming and offering sacrifices and thinking that they are seeking God and honoring Him and worshiping Him. You know what God's estimation of it was? Unclean. Unacceptable. And friends, that's a serious situation for God's people. It was not only that God was not pleased with their worship, they were offering sacrifices for their sins, and God was saying, I'm not accepting them because you as a people are unclean. Now, why not? They were doing right sacrifices. They were following, I think, as best they could, the regulative principle of worship. We know what that is, right, as good Presbyterians. We only worship God according to what He's revealed in His Word. If you do anything else, it's idolatry, it's not pleasing to God. But even though they're offering the right sacrifices that they can as the temple is still being rebuilt or before it's being rebuilt, they weren't really seeking the Lord. Look at verse 17. God, as he's responding, looking at how he had disciplined them, we'll get into this in a moment. He said, I struck you in all the products of your toil and blight with mildew and with hell. And notice this phrase, yet you did not turn to me. Now, it sure looked like they were turning to him. They were going through the religious ritual. They were going through the prescribed sacrifices as best they could. After all, the temple wasn't rebuilt. But they would go to the temple mount where it was. They would offer sacrifices. And God says, you're not really seeking me in this. You're going through the forms of worship, but your heart is not right before me. Friends, we see here for us, there is a great seriousness in our God's eyes of persistent unrepentance. When we know ourselves to be in disobedience to God and we refuse to worship Him, it defiles even our right worship. This is a common theme throughout the Scriptures. You can think of texts like Proverbs 15.8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is His delight. And it's not that the sacrifice is wrong, it's the one offering it. Or think about the famous incident where King Saul shows his true colors and God has told him to, to kill all the Amalekites and all their plunder and to wipe it all out. And when Samuel goes to meet him, what does he hear? The bleeding of the sheep. And here Saul is taking things on his own hand. And he's making offerings to the Lord. And what does God say through his prophet? To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey, there's an amen. Praise God for that. Thank you. To obey is better than sacrifice. But there's not just an Old Testament example. That's not just the way of the Old Covenant. That way continues in the New Covenant. If you would turn with me to the New Testament, to 1 Corinthians 11, a familiar text, one that we hear at least reference probably every Sunday as we partake of the Lord's table. Look at 1 Corinthians 11.17. 1 Corinthians 11.17, Paul says to the church at Corinth, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. That's coming together for worship. This is presumably Lord's Day worship. And he's actually saying you're, what you're doing when you come together is, is for the worse. It's not for the better. I mean, think about what a statement that is. Think about how we look to the Lord's Day and perhaps more than ever through this pandemic and times where we couldn't meet for a while, how precious it is to gather for worship. And yet Paul says when you come together, it's, it's actually for the worse. Verse 20 
when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. What? It's not the Lord's Supper. They sure thought it was the Lord's Supper. They, did, they understood that this bread and wine symbolized the, the body and blood of Christ. Why is it not the Lord's Supper when they gather on wor- for worship together? Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. They are disregarding each other. They're not treating each other as the body of Christ. Recognizing the body is, is this, all those united to Christ by faith. And it's such a serious thing when they disregard their brothers that Paul says it's actually not the Lord's Supper. God is not pleased with your celebration of the Lord's Supper. Think about what we just prayed together in the Lord's Prayer in unison. Remember when you prayed for the forgiveness of sins, and you may be so familiar with it, you didn't think about it, but it's what St. Augustine called the terrible petition, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You can come to God ostensibly through Christ, recognizing his death on the cross for sinners, and say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. And yet if you hold bitterness and unforgiveness towards those who sinned against you and repented, God says, no forgiveness, no forgiveness. It's a serious situation. You may be thinking, Richie, aren't we Reformed Presbyterians? Don't we believe that that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Aren't we only acceptable through the finished work of Jesus Christ and his life, death, resurrection, and heavenly ascension? And I say, amen and amen. But the reality is when we come to God and we want only a partial Savior, we're not actually coming to God through Christ. When we're not clinging to Jesus as the one who not only delivers us from the penalty of sin, but also wants to deliver us from the power of sin in our lives, we are deceiving ourselves if we think we're clinging to Him as Savior and coming to Him. You see, friends, faith and repentance always go hand in hand. Repentance towards our sin is the immediate reflex and fruit of faith in Christ. It's, as we've often heard, two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other because the only way salvation or the only way you can be saved is to be united to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Sinclair Ferguson well said in his book a few years ago, he is the whole Christ. You can't have half a Christ. You can't have a Savior but say, I don't want your lordship. That's true of those of us who are outside of Christ and need to come to Him for salvation. It's true of those who are already united to Christ and we live and walk in repentance in our new relationship with God. We must come with true repentance, but we easily deceive ourselves into thinking that we're repentant and yet we may not be seeking God because we're walking in areas of disobedience to God. Friends, do you see the urgency of what God is calling us to in this passage? Do you see how important it is to reckon with how our rebellion renders us and our worship as rubbish to God? Are you here today ostensibly to worship God through words, sacrament, and prayer, and yet you have areas in your life that you are still holding on to that you know are displeasing your Father in heaven? Do you come here to delight in the reconciliation with God your Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet you're holding unforgiveness and bitterness to a spouse, a sibling, a parent, a church member, an officer in this church, another Christian who has wronged you, 
and you're holding on to it, and God comes to you and says, you need to reckon with how your rebellion renders your worship as rubbish in my sight. Friends, do you come here to say that Christ is your treasure, that He's the delight of your life, and yet your life is filled with greed and covetousness in an unrepentant fashion, and you're headlong seeking after riches and trusting in riches? Jesus comes to you and says in His Word in Haggai, you need to reckon with how your repentance renders your worship as rubbish. Are you here to delight in the covenant faithfulness of our God, a God who makes and keeps His promises to us in Jesus, and yet you are flirting with and engaging in and not fighting wholeheartedly against sexual impropriety in your life? God comes to you through His Word and says, you need to reckon with how your rebellion renders your worship as rubbish. Our God expects what the Puritans called universal obedience which means there's no area we can hold with from our Savior. He is Lord of all, and we are to repent of all and to walk in repentance as believers in all. So, friends, I urge you this morning from Haggai 2, 10 to 14, to reckon how your rebellion may be rendering your worship as rubbish to our Lord. But sometimes we have a hard time seeing that. We are masters at self-deception, And so sometimes our Father in heaven brings His discipline in the form of trouble in our life to awaken us that things may not be right with us. Turn back to Haggai chapter 2, verse 15, where we see that we are called to repent in light of our Redeemer's right discipline in our lives. Look at what the Lord wants to do to His people in His grace. He wants to highlight what they're gaining through their genuine repentance. Look at verse 15. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? He wants it to be etched in their memory from this grand celebration where they're commemorating the rebuilding of the temple. Before that moment on the 24th day of the ninth month, what was life like for them? How did you fare before stone was placed upon stone in the language of verse 15? Again, this seems to be a technical term, but I think there's a little bit of Hebrew double entendre here. Hebrew loves to make its points through subtlety and and do word plays to make a point. And when he says you place stone upon stone, it was the same verb in Hebrew from Haggai 1, 5 to 7, where he says, consider your ways. Literally, place it upon your heart in Hebrew. Place it upon your heart about your ways. And he's saying from the moment when you, if you will, placed it on your heart and demonstrated that repentance and new obedience to the rebuilding of the temple, I want you to take note of how I'm going to change how I am responding to you. So he reminds them what was happening until this day, until they repented and demonstrated their repentance. Look at verse 15. I'm sorry, we're at verse 16 now. How did you fare? Well, here's how they fared. When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. 50% less expectation. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20, more than 50%. And here's why. Look at what the Lord of hosts is doing to his people. He says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hell, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the nine month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. 
very clearly in God's covenant with his people, he's acting in covenant faithfulness to curse them because of their rebellion, and their labors are futile. I met with a young man this week who's trying to make that transition of moving out of the home, uh, kind of university age, and I'd heard that he had a job and he was excited about it uh, previously, and as we met to have coffee this week, I'd heard he quit his job, and I said, why'd you quit your job? He said, well, it was a sales job, and they made all these promises that I'd be making this money, and I'd work three or four days, and he said, I didn't have a dollar to show for it, and I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent this month. He had great expectations of labor, and they crumbled beneath him, and he was in trouble. And God's people at this time were laboring hard and having great expectations of a good crop, and they would come with great disappointment because God was acting in covenant faithfulness to curse them. This is what he'd warned in Deuteronomy 28. If you persist in rebellion against me, I'll bring you blight and mildew and hell. And God was acting in them. Now, you may be thinking at this point, Richie, well, that's, that's the old covenant. Man, I'm so glad we're in the new covenant in Jesus Christ, and I am as well. And yet, there are still some similar patterns, maybe not quite to the same degree. In the old covenant, God wanted to mark the relationship with his people, a key indicator of his blessing materially upon them. And if crops were failing, if they were losing battles, clear sign they were walking in rebellion against God. Does God still act in that way in some measure? I would say yes. Look back at 1 Corinthians 11. Back to where Paul is castigating the Corinthians for the way they've abused each other and thus made unclean, if you will, the Lord's Supper. Had God been doing anything to try to get the Corinthians' attention, to lead them to repentance? Well, yes, according to Paul. Look at 1 Corinthians 11.30. Maybe we'll start at verse 29. He says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, and again, I think it's more than just knowing this is bread and wine, it's knowing this is the body, all those united to Christ, because that's what he's getting on to them about. He says, verse 30, listen to this, This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Did you catch that? That is serious fatherly discipline from God to his people. Some of them are sick, undergoing illnesses. Some have died as God's severe mercy to his people to try to get their attention that they might repent. And Paul draws on that and encourages them to repent. Now, I think as Reformed Presbyterians, we really struggle with this more than some of those in the Christian circles. I think we have a knee-jerk reaction to maybe the health and wealth gospel proponents who say, if you believe in Jesus and have just enough faith, everything will go great with you. You'll have plenty of money. Your diseases will be healed. And, And we know that we live in a world of misery. We know that we're not under those same exact promises of the old covenant where if we're just faithful, God will bless us and make everything right. And we rail against that. We know that to follow Christ will often invite more suffering. Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so sometimes I think we don't even consider, is God trying to get my attention through maybe some of the difficult circumstances that are in my life? I think our doctrine of providence, which is a wonderful doctrine of of God's ruling over everything, it is one of the greatest comforts of the Christian life. It's why John Piper could write 700 pages on it in his last book, which I have not read yet, but I'm sure is fantastic. Sometimes as Reformed Presbyterians, we look at difficulty in our life and say, well, this is just a difficult providence. God's sovereignty is good. 
I'm just going to trust him. And yes, that is a great reaction. But could it be, at times, could it be that you're, if you're a man or woman, boy or child who is united to Christ, could it be out of his fatherly love for you at times because you, we have such a tendency to leave the God we love and, and get in these areas where we say, this is mine. I'll give this to the Lord, the 99% to the Lord, but this area of my life is mine. Could it be that your Father in heaven loves you so much that he could be bringing discipline in your life in the form of trials to catch your attention, as he did with God's people in Haggai, as he did with the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11? Now, I think Seth gave a, I listened to your sermon, Seth, a good sermon, brother. I'm encouraged by Seth's gifts in preaching. I'm thankful for that, and Mark's as well. I listened to both those sermons. Seth brought out a good point. We don't need to be Job's comforters, comforters, friends, right? Every time we see trial in someone's life, oh, you must be doing something wrong. That's not what I'm saying. I don't even want you to think that, much less act that. But I think it would behoove us, in light of what God's Word says, when we may see an unusual measure of trials in our own life, to perhaps take a little bit of self-reflection. And I'll say it has to be, you know, that we're in sin, but maybe. Maybe God's trying to get our attention. Maybe we need to actually pray Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Maybe we should pray that sometimes when we see difficulty. God, are you trying to get my attention? And because of our enormous capacity for self-deception, we should probably say to a trusted pastor or elder or ministry leader or friend or spouse, Do you see any areas in my life that maybe I'm blind to, that you see me continually going in? Do you see any areas that I might need to repent of? And perhaps God will. Perhaps he won't, but what have you to lose? (laughs) But deepening your joy and your walk with Christ, if you know him. There's always a blessing of repentance, because repentance is already meant to be the daily mark of the Christian, daily walking in repentance and faith on the basis of our union with Christ. And friend, may I speak to you, whether you're a student or a a middle-aged person or a young single or an older person, and, and you do not yet follow Jesus Christ, and yet maybe in God's providence in your life, you've been going through difficult things lately. Maybe you've had some things you hoped for for a long time, and they've fallen away. Maybe there's some relationships that have broken up that, that have grieved you. Maybe there's illness in your life. Could it be that God in His mercy is trying to get your attention? Because not only does God deal with his redeemed people that way to help them grow and mature in Christ, sometimes God does that to people who are outside of Christ, who do not know him, to get their attention. I was struck when I first moved to India in 2010 and sitting down with a group of pastors that I would be teaching and meeting with and just hearing their stories of how they came to faith and their call to ministry. And it was about 10, 10 men from South India and And they began to share their testimonies, and I was struck that about five of them had some sort of, they came from a Hindu background, and they had some sort of difficulty in their life, whether it was a health issue or huge financial hardship. And in that, they began to explore Christianity initially, not because they knew themselves to be sinners and Christ is the only Savior, but they thought, well, hey, you know, in Hinduism, every way is a good way, so maybe this way will work for me. Maybe this Jesus I can treat like an idol, and he'll help me out of my situation. And then as they got familiar with the Bible or maybe went to a church, they began to hear the gospel and realized that their greatest problem wasn't their financial situation or health issues. Their their greatest problem is that they were under God's wrath. And the only way to avert that was to put their faith in Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. 
non-Christian who may be here today, can I interpret your difficulties perhaps in your life that maybe God is trying to get your attention? What a terrible thing to miss His mercy. There's a reason if you're a non-Christian that you're here today and you're hearing this sermon because Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners, is being freely offered to you right now. What a terrible thing it would be to stand before God the judge and Him point back and say, Do you not remember all those things I brought in your life, how I even offered you the gospel on July 18th, 2021 at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and yet you did not turn to me? Friends, my plea to you, if you do not know Christ, is today would be the day that you would turn to the Lord Jesus and cast yourself fully on his mercy. He will welcome you in. Because you see, friends, God's Discipline is out of mercy. It's out of his overflowing love for his people. Look back at Haggai chapter 2, verse 17. Remember, he says, this was the point of why I afflicted you, why I struck you. Haggai 2, 17, I'm getting there, says, yet you did not turn to me. That was his goal, that they might turn to him because he loves his people deeply. He loves his people deeply. I have five kids, and there's often lots of need for discipline. Um, this kid is going to remain nameless. Uh, my kids are getting old enough now that they don't like it when I use them in sermon illustrations, so I have to be careful. But this kid, when this child was younger, I'm going to try not to reveal the gender either. I did that the other day. I was trying to be anonymous and narrowed it down to 50% because I said it was a boy. <laughs> so this child whose gender shall remain nameless. Sometimes, a few years ago, when I would discipline this child, and usually that involved a spanking if it was serious enough, and after I would spank this child and say, we're doing this because we love you, your mom and I love you, and they'd say, you don't love me, you don't love me, you don't love me, and they'd just repeat that over and over again. It was kind of cute in some ways. <laughs> I would have to assure them, no, I do love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't discipline you in this way. I became very careful in my lingo of even instructing them. I, I found myself sometimes saying, I love you, but I'm going to have to spank you, which sounded like it was not something that was loving. And I would say, because I love you, I'm going to have to spank you and discipline you because I want your heart turned towards Jesus. Friends, God comes and he spanks his children because he loves us. And that spanking hurts sometimes. That spanking can be terrible difficulty at times. Again, please hear me. I'm not saying if you're going through difficulty, it's because of that, but it could be. And that's between you and the Lord and some good friends to work out Sometimes we need to repent in light of our Redeemer's right discipline in our lives. And one of the ways that His loving discipline helps bring us to repentance is the reward promised. And so in the concluding part of our passage, He will urge us thirdly to rejoice in the reward our Redeemer offers to repentance. You see, God is wanting to make it abundantly clear to His people that the blessings He's about to pour on them are not by coincidence, not by accident, but they're because he is responding in faithfulness to his covenant. He has cursed them by bringing hardship, and now they are repenting and he is blessing them. Look at the repeated language in verse 15, 18, and 19. He says in Haggai 2.15, now consider from this day onward. Verse 18, consider from this day onward. Verse 19 at the end, but from this day on, he wants to make a clear distinction in their mind. What's going to be the difference? We find it in the last part of verse 19. From this day on, I will bless you. 
I will bless you. How's that going to be seen? It's going to be seen very clearly. Their crop, I mean, look what he's been pointing out. Their crops are going to go crazy. They're going to grow, and what's expectation is going to be there, and it's going to be a clear moment. And God is so gracious because he wants them to see, and that's why he's doing it on this ceremony day, so they'll never forget the graciousness of their God and his response to their genuine repentance. Look at the language of verse 15 and 18 when he says, consider from this day onward. The Hebrew is really beautiful here. It says, place it on your heart. Place it on your heart. What's interesting is that's the same language he used when he called them to repentance. Look back at chapter 1, verse 5. When he says, consider your ways, he says, place on your heart your ways. Verse 7, consider your ways is place on your heart your ways. Before, what they were to place on their heart was their sin because they were walking in disobedience. And God says, I want you to see your sin. I want you to reckon how your sin renders your worship as rubbish. I want you to see how I'm bringing my discipline because of your sin. But once they've repented, once they've repented, everything has changed. Now he wants to highlight how he's going to respond to them, how he's going to bless them, You've seen those before and after ads, right, of weight loss exercise, whether on social media or if you still read old print uh, things, and they're advertising the newest diet supplement workout program, and there's a man or woman who's flabby out of shape, perhaps, and that's the before, and what's the difference? They took this supplement, they did this workout routine, and, you know, they're thin or shredded, ripped, whatever it may be. God is placing a before and after and said, here's what life was like when you were in rebellion and refused to repent. But now that you've repented and are rebuilding the temple, I want you to see the after. I want you to see how my blessing is overflowing into your life. And friends, isn't it significant that all this centers around the temple? The temple is the place that enabled, if you will, God to be gracious to his people. The temple is where God met with his people and they offered sacrifices for sin. And on the day of atonement, they were atoned for God's people. And it's quite interesting that all their repentance centers around the temple which points us to the one who's the true temple and the true priest and the true sacrifice, the Lord Jesus, who would make atonement for sin on that cross. And that's why you can be offered repentance if you're not a Christian or why you can continue to walk in repentance as a Christian because of Christ's atoning work. And so, friends, today I want to ask you to place it on your heart about God's promised reward to repentance. Yes, you need to see and evaluate your life if you're walking in rebellion against God. You need to reckon with how your worship is rendered rubbish. You need to see God's perhaps severe discipline. But friends, once you repent, God wants you to lay, for that moment, lay aside that sin. He doesn't want you to consider your ways anymore. Now he's calling us in Haggai 2 to consider his grace. Place it on your heart how I'm going to bless you. Place it on your heart how I'm responding to you. You see, God loves to pour out His grace and favor on His people as they repent. He likes to assure them of His love. He loves to reward them. It may not come in material blessing. It may not come into an end to your troubles. It might. I think if you look at James 5, there seems to be someone who's in sin and they confess their sins. People pray for them and they're healed. Maybe God will remove some severe discipline. But friends, the greatest reward that God offers you as you walk with Him in Christ and you repent is just his favor and delight in you because your sin grieves him. He's your father in heaven if you're not into Christ. He's grieved by your sin. 
He delights when you repent. He rejoices and he, he offers this reward. And that reward, that welcome acceptance is meant to encourage repentance. Cancel culture doesn't encourage repentance, but your Father in heaven does if you know him through Christ. That's why the shorter catechism is so important. Look, look back at that if you would. I'd asked uh, Pastor Stone to put this in here. I love the catechism's teaching on repentance. It says, repentance into life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin. That's considering your ways, Haggai 1, 5, and 7. And then apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ is Haggai 2, 15, and 18, and 17. We repent in light of the mercy that is offered to us. And when we see how welcoming God is to us as we repent, whether we're a non-Christian coming to faith in Christ for the first time, or whether we're a child of God adopted and united to Christ, and we've been grieving our Father by our sin, when we return to Him, He delights in us. And that is meant to urge us to run to Him the moment we become aware of and see our sin, to know that the same word he gave to his people on that memorable day on this 24th month, day of the ninth month, from this day on, I will bless you. God blesses us with the assurance of his grace and favor as we repent and walk with him. And some of you, friends, really need this. Some of you are probably more like me and you're hard-hearted and God sometimes almost has to strike you to get you to see your sin and you're like, oh yeah, I can't believe I've been doing that. But there's others of you who have a tender or a bruised conscience and you repent all the time and yet you wonder in, in light of your repentance, is, does God really favor to me? Does he delight in me? Or is he gonna stay a distance? And friends, you need to hear and you need to place it on your heart how God gracious your father in heaven is, how he delights to assure you of his favor and love, how he says to you every time you repent, I bless you, I love you. I delight in you. I've heard this quote attributed to a number of different authors. I think it traces back to Martin Luther. He said, for every one glance you take at your own sin, take 10 glances at Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we've seen in Haggai? First, they were supposed to consider their ways, consider their ways. They repent, and now says, God says, consider my grace. Consider my grace. Consider my favor. Consider my blessing. Some of you who really struggle with that tender conscience, you really need to fix your eyes on the promised reward of repentance, which is your Father in heaven's great delight, great blessing, great joy in you. It's told the story of a pastor who was meeting with a, a man in his town who was not a Christian, and he was regularly meeting with him and trying to share Christ with him. And this was a businessman who owned a soap manufacturing plant. And so as they're walking along, and the pastor is sharing the gospel, the businessman says, you know, pastor, I just don't think your gospel works. I look around and I see there's so much wickedness in our world and there's so many wicked people. I just don't think that gospel works. The pastor is trying to think about how to respond to this businessman and this objection. And as they're walking along, they see some kids playing in some mud and the kids are filthy from head to toe and they're doing, especially as boys like to do, you know, putting the mud on them. And the pastor says, I've got it. <laughs> So he turns to the businessman, the soap manufacturer, and he says, you know, I don't think your soap works very well. I look around and there's lots of dirt in the world. There's lots of mud. There's lots of dirty people. I think you need to get a new business, my friend. And the soap manufacturer, without even thinking about it, says, oh, well, soap is only useful when it's applied. And the pastor said, and so too, my friends, with the gospel. So too with the gospel. It is only useful when it is applied 
Friends, in our passage in Haggai today, we've seen our Redeemer giving us a wonderful glimpse into how he responds to our repentance. So I urge you, friends, take up the soap, repent to reap the reward of our gracious and good Redeemer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a wise and a gracious heavenly Father who loves us so much. I think of the words of Hebrew 12 where you say that you discipline every son that you receive. And for those of us who are sons and daughters through our union with Christ, we are thankful that you love us enough to hurt us at times so that we will return to you, so that we will live lives of repentance and delight in your favor and grace. Father, there may be those among us who truly are united to Christ and yet have areas in our life where we are refusing to repent. We might say the words, and yet we really are not returning to you. Father, today, by your Holy Spirit, would you use your word to give them the grace of repentance, to lay down that sin, to lean on the help of Christ, the one to whom they are united, to fight with all the resources of grace against that sin in light of the promised reward of your assistance and favor and delight in their repentance. Father, in a crowd this size, there are no doubt young and old, some who do not know Christ. Lord, today, would you speak to their hearts? Would you work in them so that they would respond to the gracious offer, the free offer of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness and reconciliation that is only found through union with Christ by faith? Please work by your Spirit. Grant that this would be a church and a people who daily walk lives of joyful cross-centered repentance. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.